0: Welcome to Mocktails and Masterpieces with the Indianapolis Chamber Orchestra. Today's episode is sponsored by Anthony Team Realty. The upcoming episode originally aired on December 8th, 2021. Greetings, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another Mocktails and Masterpieces. I'm Matthew Kramer, Music Director of the Indianapolis Chamber Orchestra. We are in the midst of holiday season, which for us at the ICO means we're preparing. Handel's Messiah, and Bach's Christmas Oratorio for presentation uh, coming up this week, made even more special by the fact that we were unable to perform for you last year. So it's already been two years of uh, this tradition being without this tradition. I'm delighted to be joined today uh, by my colleague, Eric Schmidt, who is on faculty at DePaul University as director of choruses, and he's our wonderful chorus master for our upcoming performance. uh, Great to see you, Eric. How are you?
1: Good, thank you, Matthew, for having me here, thanks. We are delighted
0: that you were able uh, to join us for this project in preparing our singers. Could you tell us just a little bit about yourself and uh, how you came uh, to be in Indiana from you know, many different places on the map?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So I'm born and raised in Germany um, and went to the United States in 2012 to get my doctorate in core conducting at the University of Utah. So I lived in Salt Lake City for about six years, um, the first four years were dedicated to my studies at the U, and then I did um, two years of freelancing over there before I then got the faculty position here at DePaul University in Greencastle and then moved to Indiana in 2018. So it's been three years and some months now in the Hoosier State, um, and it's been really wonderful to explore um, yeah, an area of this country that I never had on my radar before.
0: And so about uh, your choral background, how did you come into the choral conducting? I understand that, you know, you play, uh, you know, a couple of piano, including a couple of instruments, but then, uh, you know, you have an interesting story to share about how you became a choral conductor.
1: Right. So my original plan was to become a high school teacher in Germany um, for music and mathematics. Um, In Germany, you need to have two subjects if you want to teach high school. So I went through the... um, academic preparation for that, I got my bachelor's and master's in both music education and mathematics education, and my main instrument was a pianist um, was the piano, but then once I joined um, some musical activities. um, I I heard very good choirs for the first time in my life, I then joined um, very good chamber groups um, during my studies and, and just fell in love with that. And so by the end of my master's, I felt that I was, I always felt I was more of a musician than a mathematician. So (laughs) that's where eventually my passion um, really is and was, Um, and and I just became curious about this field and just wanted to learn more about it. And um, it then just happened that, you know how it is as a student, you just, you just look for many different recordings, right, online and on YouTube, there were just a lot of really good Choir uh, recordings from from choirs in Utah, so that aroused my interest, and um, I then just went on a trip just for fun, reached out to the folks over there if I could just you know um, swing by and some rehearsals and get some impressions to just broaden my horizon. And then four months later, I woke up in Salt Lake City, um, enrolled in my doctoral studies, and yeah, that that was a very interesting and unexpected twist in my life that. I've never regretted, and it's been a wonderful roller coaster ever since.
0: Oh, that's phenomenal! And it, it, like so many stories that we musicians share together, how one door opens and leads to another door, which opens for us, and you know, we look back ten years later and we see all the, the, this journey and where it's taken us. So, and in Utah, then you've also not just in the academic uh, environment, but you've also had uh, considerable professional experience uh, with the great Utah Symphony and chorus. There, tell us about that.
1: That's correct. Yeah, I was very fortunate that my mentor, Barlow Bradford, who is the professor a professor at the University of Utah, um, was also involved in many other professional activities and initially just tacked me along, right? Um, and um, he is the chorus master for the Utah Symphony. Um, he has his own professional choir that is the Utah Chamber Artist. They also um, frequently are joined by um, a chamber orchestra. Um, and um, I myself also became a faculty member at the um, Madeleine Choir School, which is one of the best children's choirs that we have in the United States, and the cathedral has a, has a superb music program. Um, so I, I was able to um, get my feet wet a little bit in this then before I more and more um, took over some own responsibilities then as times went by. Um, which then led to some involvements in the uh, Grand Teton Music Festival with Sir Donald Runicles. Um, Some other, you know, I prepared some. Was was lucky to prepare some choirs for um, great international conductors um, that that swung by swung by at the Utah Symphony. Um, And yeah, it was a wonderful mix of having just big symphonic choirs and also small chamber groups. Um, There was a lot going on in Salt Lake City. And um, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed being in in this spectrum of, of different choral music there. And your
0: bio is very impressive. You list some of those large choral works you were describing, the Car- Carmina Barano, Berlioz's Faust, you know, Mahler Resurrection. Uh, so let's talk specifically about this program, because it is a very different genre of music. We're going back in time to, to Baroque music. But first of all, about these two pieces, Handel's Messiah has no shortage of performances, not only in this country, but around the world. I mean, it's been it's been performed Every year since it was first written, and even in the multiple versions of different arias that Handel had arranged for different performances, um, so this is one of those works, you know, right up there with Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker, which we just expect this time of year. And there are other performances in the city as well. Uh, the Bach is a little less familiar to American audiences, although it's still widely performed. But I'm curious, you know, as a, a German native, mm-hmm. is there one of these works which
1: is more popular in Germany uh, at, at this time of year? Yeah, it was very interesting to discover this here in the United States. Um, I grew up with the the Weihnachtsoratorium, so the Bach being played every Christmas season in Germany. It is pretty much what the Handel Messiah is um, for American audiences. The Weihnachtsoratorium is for German audiences. And interestingly, we focus um, on the Messiah more on the Easter part. So for me, Handel and the Hallelujah Chorus was always this quintessential Easter piece. Um, I guess because mainly that that Christmas part is already occupied by the Bach, which is, of course, in German right and the handle um, the Messiah works much better in English um, i'm totally convinced by that. Um, <laughs> but so um, yeah the Weihnachts oratorium is vastly popular, N- not lastly, because um, many of those melodies the tunes that that Bach uses in the chorale are just part of the German tradition right every every um, kid almost knows these tunes I grew up with them and they have been around for centuries um, which is also why you know Bach picked them up um, because they were just familiar to the audiences Um, so um, it is quite a popular work yeah not easy to do though
0: (laughs) very true you know we had done for so many years with the chamber orchestra the entire messiah but I felt very much I feel still continue to feel very much like you that you know the Christmas portion is what is, you know, obviously appropriate for this time of year, not that you can't do, I and mean, plenty of organizations do the entire thing, but, you know, the, um, the, the the great, the the body of the, you know, the second part, that uh, the uh, the Easter portion of it, that's, you know, the, the core of Messiah, at least in my view, and so that we decided then to pair two cantatas from the Bach along with the Christmas portion of Messiah, which you'll hear this weekend, uh, so let's talk about uh, this repertoire, uh, you know, performing uh, for instrumentalists, but certainly for uh, vocalists, for singers, Baroque repertoire demands a different kind of style altogether, whether you're going full period performance style or just inflecting some of the nuances of periods performance style into uh, interpretation. Talk about, you know, approaching Baroque vocal music versus, again, Berlioz, smaller, etc.
1: Right. I would say the biggest challenge is that most Baroque composers treat the voice like any other instrument. Um, so they write very intricate lines, um, all these long melismas that are fast, that are fairly easy to do on an instrument and, and much more challenging um, to do this on the voice. Um, so that's that's one of the main differences. Another thing that you of course have to pay attention to is to pair the articulation, um, all, pretty much if you want to have a good baroque score, it comes without any markings, right? Um, And um, because there was that understanding back then in um, these times that musicians just knew what to do. Um, And um, to convey that to the group requires a lot of coordination. Um, It requires a lot of work before the first rehearsal. Um, And um, this is what really unifies it. Um, And of course, um, if you have a group with, with several singers, there is more work to do than just, you know, a smaller chamber um, orchestra. So that is one of the main differences. And then, of course, stylistically, you can always, there are many different tastes right um some prefer less vibrato some say well vibrato of course was a natural um occurrence right of the voice back then in baroque as well so that that can be argued but um many times especially if you have so many notes to cover in these melismas or so the the lines need to just be lighter um than let's say if you sing in a mala symphony right where you have also a very different body of of an orchestra with you that you have to not compete with, but make music together with. So in other words, the the, the texture or the the, the, the yeah, is lightness, is that a word in-, in, in Oh, absolutely. English? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, you have to pay more for, uh, more attention to this um, for the music to just feel like this dance-like music, you know, Baroque, is, Baroque music is dance to me. And um, that is the combination of many notes, Sung quickly but lightly is not easy at all.
0: You, so you stated that perfectly. I mean, those are adjectives that I use in, in the description of this. Because also to another point you made, it's about t- style and taste, and we all know that tastes can change. You go back, you know, to the 40s, 50s, and you know these enormous orchestra string sections that they had for Messiah. And everything was slow and plodding and it just, you know, had a, a, a center of gravity to a very heavy weight to it. And then along comes the period performance movement and everything becomes lighter, more dance-like, textures are more transparent, uh, ornamentation is very crisp and very, very clean, and everything is text-driven. And so I find that these, these change in tastes, you know, are enlightening, uh, really, to come back to pieces of music which we thought we knew, but then you hear it perform differently and it sounds absolutely like a different piece altogether. So talk to us a little bit of, about the Bach, since the Handel would be the, the piece people are most familiar with. But the Bach, you know, it's it's an oratorio, it says, but it's actually made up of different uh, uh, different uh, parts of it. We're performing one and two, but I'll let you describe the work as a whole.
1: Sure, yeah. Yeah. Um... So Bach wrote this um, Christmas, I I believe you just call it Christmas cantata, right? The German uh, word is Weihnachtsoratorium, which would mean a Christmas oratorio. So uh, I guess there is a little distinction here. It consists of six different cantatas um, that Bach wrote for each of the six Sundays from, um, not the Sundays, but the uh, first few Christmas days all the way then through Epiphany. Is that how you call that in in English? Um, So, but it is is pretty evident that uh, the way how Bach just um, conceptualized this piece that all of these cantatas build a cohesive um, unit. So each cantata is about yeah, 20, 25 minutes long. Um, and um, of course, um, uh, yeah. how do you say that? I mean, Bach wrote many, many, many cantatas right for every Sunday um, when he was in, uh, in, in Leipzig. And um, So he's following that tradition, however, of course the significance of this holiday um, may have inspired him to do a bigger work that consists of all of these single elements.
0: And it's a a staggering fact with Bach if you think of the workload that he had in his life, the size of his family that he went to went home to every day he was able to generate this wealth of music of course Mo- Mozart in his short lifetime was able to do a great amount of work but with Bach I just imagine like you mentioned the writing the cantatas for every week and then of course we have the great St. Matthew's passion, St. John's passion, uh, B minor mass I mean just some staggering works and really the pinnacle of the Baroque era so That's, in your career yeah, you're working yeah. now with please go ahead.
1: No, I just wanted to say it is absolutely mind blowing indeed. And we mustn't forget that in addition to, you know, his, his big family that he had and all his, his his obligations as a performer, he also had his tasks um at the school that he was teaching at, right? He he had to do Latin classes or he had to just be a supervisor and and I just recently read again that some of his duties included he had to swing by at the how do you call that the place where some sick students are right if if they are just have the flu or whatnot. um, That he had to make sure that other students don't sneak in there and and just kind of use that as an excuse to then just you know have a drink or so. (laughs) So he had all sorts of um, additional tasks that I can't imagine how busy his life must have been. Mm
0: So specifically in your career now working with uh, college students, but then also the professional world. So t- tell us a little bit about um, you know, the rehearsal process here, working with professionals. For the orchestra, we come together. Uh, we'll meet on Wednesday night, uh, which was last night, um, and then we'll mm-hmm. rehearse with the, with the chorus, but then we'll also have, uh you know two more rehearsals which one of which includes dress so eric is to say it all comes very together for the instrumentalists as a choral conductor you begin much earlier than that tell us about the rehearsal process getting these singers ready
1: right um one of the biggest parts there is the communication with everyone because usually for these kind of project groups you have um singers from all sorts of different pools if you want and to bring these together um, can be a challenging, um, yeah, a challenging project, there. especially for someone like me coming into this for the first time in into this Indianapolis bubble, um, not knowing anyone. Um, yeah, that was that was a wonderful experience, but also time-consuming. And then, um, it 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 depends on the group. But for a, a choir, of course, needs some kind of experience of singing together as well to really find the group sound, if you want, especially if the singers don't know each other, if they come from different, all of these different bubbles, it it, it just takes a while to get a feeling for this. Um, and um, yeah, other than that, if if you work on the professional level, I mean, it is expected that they come with a music learned as well. Um, however, I will say that there is a difference if, let's say, you know, you have your oboe line, and you just play the oboe line. That might be a little bit easier. than you have the vocal line, and you are just um, expected to to just fit right in because singers just need each other more so than um, than instrumentalists, I would say. Because they uh, are things about about so. on an on, a, on an oboe, the tuning that you have to worry about is only within this frame, right? But singers have to adjust their tuning much more to to others around them. Um, and the diction has to be more unified. So in other words, there are many more parameters that just have to be unified that require rehearsal time and therefore coordination.
0: Well, thank you for that, Eric. And I'm just overjoyed that you were able to join us in your busy schedule, helping prepare this weekend's performance. Two great, beloved classics this time of year, certainly, but any time of year, Bach's Christmas Oratorio and Handel's Messiah. We look forward to our performance. We're hoping all of you who are tuning in, are able to join us three o'clock this Sunday at Indiana Landmarks. Eric, great to spend some time chatting with you.
1: Likewise. Thanks very much for having me. I'm very much looking forward for the performances. Thanks, everyone.